Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Future of Sales. I'm your host, Sahil Mansuri, CEO of Bravado. And with me today is a familiar face to many in the world of SaaS and businesses and sales, uh, Patrick Campbell, co-founder and CEO of ProfitWell, formerly uh, Price Intelligently. What up, man? Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. Super excited. Uh, don't always get to sound off on sales and things like that. So I'm excited to go deep on something I normally don't talk about. There you go. And uh, and I think, you know, for, for the benefit of our uh, viewers and our listeners, perhaps you could just give a little background on what ProfitWell is and what you guys do, uh, which I think will be a good framing for our conversation today. Yeah, absolutely. And in the kind of the back of the baseball card stats. We're about a 50 person company here in Boston, um, fully bootstrapped, which is kind of like a fun, fun little fact. Um, and our core product is a free subscription financial metrics. So you plug in your brain trees, Stripe, Zora, whatever you're using, um, and basically get free access to your MRR, your churn, all those important numbers. And then we sell products that basically help move important numbers in profit. Well, so we sell a product called retain that basically takes care of your mechanics mechanical or delinquent churn. Uh, we saw a product called Price Intelligently, which was actually the first pro- product uh, that's just on, you know, been helping you with your pricing. We sell a couple of other things, but the whole model is all about subscription companies. And uh, at this point, we actually have about 25% of the market uh, using one or more of our products. And so we're, we're pretty pumped at having this nice little center, one of the centers of the subscription universe, just because we can learn so much. That's right. And, you know, pricing is uh, one of the core, uh, I guess, foundational skill sets that you learn as a salesperson. And you see wildly different uh, tactics that are used by different companies, by different sales managers, by different sales reps. And, you know, I've worked at organizations that, um, you know, where let's say that the baseline like sticker price for a piece of software is $10,000. Let's just say mm-hmm. it's an annual subscription. It's $10,000. And uh, come the last week of the month, uh, that number, that number can, can, can vary wildly. Two thousand. Come the, last, come the <laughs> yeah. last day of the month, that number can really uh, vary wildly. Mm-hmm. Um, where where you know we're selling deals that are you know 70 80 90 percent off of list price just because there's some number we need to hit or just because there's there's some goal that's in front of the team or whatnot um and 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 we have had a number of uh you know guests on this show talk about the the concept of quotas and how all of that affects uh you know the 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 mechanic around buyers and sellers and the lack of trust around salespeople because of pushiness and there's yeah. a lot to unpack here but i think where i want to start because you sit on a mountain of data that i have never had access to so yeah let me take advantage here yeah uh, yeah and you won't because it's very private. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. But but uh, you have trends that you have access to. Yeah. Uh, and, and specifically for that, I'd, I'd love to hear, you know, what do you see in the market as far as, you know, the way that sales teams and companies uh, price infor- and price their products and, and discounting and, and whatnot? Because I think that's a really interesting topic. 
Yeah, I think there's a couple of places where we can start. And I think starting on kind of like a nice tactical, little bit of myth busting um, is probably the best place. Okay. So what's really interesting is we did a study and, and we published this a little while ago and I can share it maybe for the show notes, but we basically looked at uh, companies that hit their goals, their, their quarterly quotas, and separated them into two groups. One group that did really, really low discounting. So like minimal, like loyalty discounts, hey, here's 5% or hey, here's just a couple percent because we're buddies or because I'll get you over the line on the last day of the month. And then we also looked at companies that were aggressive discount. And what, what we noticed is that when you looked at the trend over a quarter, basically the folks doing minimal discounts was very incremental, meaning they were adding revenue every single day. Basically, it was just kind of going up and to the right every day. Um, there weren't huge spikes. There weren't huge craters. It was just very, very focused. And then when we looked at the companies that were doing aggressive discounts, basically the quota was trending flat, if not really low, until kind of mid-quarter or so. And then all of a sudden, uh, you saw this huge swing where there was this huge growth rate in the second half of the quarter, and they hit their goal, right? And they actually beat the, the people who did slower discounts. Now, you look at that data, and clearly there's a difference. Uh, clearly, those heavy discounters, there's a lot of things going on in that sales team. But when we actually study some of the lurking variables with those two groups, what we found is that those companies that had the incremental, very, very low discount, but still hit their goals, um, churn rates were basically nothing. Like churn was very, very low. Um, the kind of happiness or NPS scores were very, very high. Uh, the the actual like ARPU was actually going up, meaning their pricing was was really, really good. And then when you looked at the the numbers for the aggressive discounters, it was basically everything was the opposite, right? And so to kind of start things off, I think that the big thing is is that really good sales teams, they understand their customers on a really, really good level, or they're able to understand their customers throughout the sales process. And what that allows them to do is just sell in a really intelligent way versus folks who are just kind of throwing stuff up against the wall, just trying to send a thousand emails to get 10 responses and trying to discount to all hell, you know, in a handbasket towards the end of the quarter. Those folks are just setting up a company for, for not complete failure, but for a lot of failure. Um, so that, that's kind of some interesting to kind of, kind of kick things off to, to kind of summarize that. What we found is that those customers who received over a 30% discount, um, and I think it was actually closer to 25%, their willingness to pay for the product dropped by actually 50 to 75% at renewal. So basically you weren't able to defend the value and the churn rates of those customers were insane. Um, and so it's just kind of showing you that basically if, if you're discounting over 25, 30%, you're just not selling to the right customers. And inevitably what ends up happening is those customers just, they, they weren't ready uh, and they should have waited another few months to really understand the product or got a little longer sales cycle. So, okay, so first of all, that data that you just shared is intuitively completely unsurprising, right? Yeah. Which is to say that it, as, a, as a salesperson, you know that the most commonly the reason that you're discounting is because a buyer isn't ready to make a purchase or is not convinced of the value. So you're using money uh, as a hook in order to get them to accelerate a decision or to make a purchasing decision entirely. Yep. And, and the problem with that 
um, is many fold, but, but it, where it really comes back down to is payback period, which is to say that in SaaS, you know, it, it's, it's very different from selling a car where a person yep. walks onto a lot, you sell them a vehicle. If they buy the vehicle and they drive off the lot, they, they're gone, right? I mean, you yeah. can't return it. You can't bring the car back. And if a year later or three months later that that person is dissatisfied with their purchase, well, too bad. I mean, you, you bought it, it's done. All sales are final. And that yeah. is definitely not the case in SaaS, right? And the vast majority of, of uh, salespeople that we interact with, I think, you know, both your company and mine, uh, is in SaaS businesses. And there, the payback period can be three years or four years. Like you need to retain yeah. customers for a very long period of time, in order to be able to continue to raise venture funding, which we can, which we'll dive into in just a bit, because you've got a unique perspective on that. Yeah. Um, in order to be able to continue to raise venture funding, it's not enough to just show top line growth. You know, the days of Groupon and Box and Zenefits and companies like that, who who basically just piled humans and piled, uh, you know, top line revenue growth, and then and said, oh, one day we'll figure out how to make a profit. Uh, those days are gone. Now VCs are much more conscientious about retention and about churn and about payback period and about ARPU, which you mentioned, which is average revenue per, per user, which is a metric of you know how much revenue are you getting per person who's using your product, which is a really healthy gauge of, of, of how well you're pricing. Um, you know, you've got you've got a very different world uh, today than we used to have. So why haven't sales teams caught up to the fact that coercing a buyer to 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 buy by offering a heavy discount when you're when you yourself are unconvinced if the buyer is going to get value, let alone the buyer being convinced yeah. to get value, is 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 a recipe for just high churn and 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 a disastrous financial model because you're just losing money on that deal. Yeah, I think the, so I, I do think sales is catching up. Uh, you have, you know, products like yours, obviously that help, you know, with certain things like that. And then you have, you know, this whole conversational marketing revolution and, and you have all this kind of stuff that's, that's kind of helping sales teams be better. Now, some of that's aspirational, meaning, hey, we know this is great for top sales teams, but they're still not using these products. And the reason they're not is typically twofold. One, a lot of these tactics work, right? So if I'm trying to basically be a used car salesman when it comes to SaaS and subscriptions, and I loved kind of the, the example that you gave because uh, this is the first business model, the subscription model where the relationship is baked right into revenue. So if that user doesn't like you anymore, you know, they're gonna churn and they're not gonna you know, come back, right? right? But I think what ends up happening is in a lot of businesses, this still works because enough people were, will basically like the product and upgrade. And so those people who thought the product was terrible and the experience was terrible, they'll, they'll just move on and there's enough people to, to sit into the funnel. But I, I think that those times are, are, are basically waning. So basically you're seeing this world where most of the markets that we're going into, because they're crowded, because it's harder and harder to acquire customers, there's no more gold rush, exactly like you're talking about. And so we're, we're kind of in that transition period. And the other thing that really is causing people to change is that for the first time in a lot of businesses, and this is terrible to say because this should have been happening for a decade, but for the first time we have end-to-end -end analytics in a lot of our businesses. You would be amazed at the number of companies that we still talk to that you talk to them about, well, what's the retention by channel? Meaning someone who came in through Facebook or someone came in through SEO, 
they don't have an answer to that question. And they're a hundred million dollar company, right? And they've spent a ton of money. They've raised a ton of cash. They've, they've really done things in a very blunt force way. And now it's easier and easier to really track those things. And so we can realize in the context of that pressure, what we need to do and what we can actually fix. I, I really like the, um, the, the emphasis on analytics there because yeah. um, companies are becoming increasingly more savvy. You know, we kind of call it the money ball revolution, right? Where, where, like that. where, where people are starting to wake up to the fact that, hey, all these numbers make sense. I, and just, just as a point on money ball, by the way, I was reading an article just this morning uh, on, yeah, I can't remember if it was The Athletic or it was, it was one of these uh, Players' Tribune or something like that uh, about Albert Pujols. And so, I, as a as a young baseball fan growing up, I, I kind of grew up admiring Albert Pujols. Not, I, I'm a Giants fan. You know, he was you know, he was a Cardinal, and so like there was some natural yeah. there. But he was just so good, you know. And he was he was he was like the most consistent hitter of all time. And 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 he basically this year is batting 250, and he went on record to say, well, the only reason I'm batting 250 instead of my career average of 300 is because. 50 points worth of my hits are being taken away by the defensive shift. And so they've realized that Albert Pujols is incredible at hitting the ball hard up the middle. And mm. so they've taken the second baseman and they've stuck him basically right over second base, but 20 feet past the infield. And yeah. so any shot he hits right past the pitcher it's going to get caught. Basically, the, the the second baseman either catches or fields and throws to first, and and you know that used to be a guaranteed base hit. If you ever hit the ball over the second base, you know the shortstop and the second baseman would always have a gap there. But for Pujols, they don't leave leave that gap because they know that he never ever hits like weak ground balls between first and second, so they just don't put anybody there. Yeah, and Pujols was standing up there saying, "Well, they should eliminate the defensive shift because you know this." <laughs> the way that baseball is supposed to be played and like this is supposed to be a hit and you know it's not just me it's for the whole like betterment of the game and and meanwhile i'm reading this and i'm thinking to myself like dude you're a dinosaur like you know yeah. <laughs> if you if you think that you can just legislate innovation out of the game because it's personally hurting you as opposed to right standing up and saying you know what I'm lucky that I played in an era where people didn't do this. Now, as a hitter, you have to be savvy. Like, we need to improve. Like, I want to teach my teammates in order to how, like, they can adapt to it as a senior citizen and steward of the game. And, yeah. And it reminded me a lot of sales, actually, and, mm. and a lot of the way that sales leaders think, which is which is to say, you know, it, we we uh, we are so scared of things like transparency and pricing. You know, like. Yeah. You go, you go to a, you go to a, a, a company's website, and, and, uh, and look up, uh, you know, their pricing. So many companies still have like contact sales in order to find pricing. Why? Like, who, who wants to contact sales to find pricing? You know, like companies should be transparent, but instead of embracing the fact that you know we need to have greater transparency, they're trying to hide even more. It confuses me. You know, I, yeah. I don't understand that logic. I think it that it, it it comes from a world where we had massive information asymmetry, right? If you go back to your used car, just your car example, right? I, you know, I've worked on cars, I've changed my own oil, but at this point in time, I have no idea what's going on with modern cars because you can't even really work on your own car anymore because it's all electronics and things like that, right? So all of a sudden, I'm talking to a salesperson 
they have so much power over me because I don't really know the truth. Now, they have less power than they might have had five to 10 years ago because I can use the internet to see if they're giving me BS or not. But that that information asymmetry still kind of exists. And what we're noticing is that with more and more competition in the market, with more you know difficulty in acquiring customers in the world of subscriptions, you're just living in this world where that information asymmetry is coming down. You know, you have this defensive shift, if you will, of people being able to research, a lot of referrals and word of mouth, people not contacting you until uh, they're deep in the research process. And you might not have made that cut if you don't have your pricing there. And so for me, the, the kind of the rule of thumb, and we've seen this with data, is that if you're really early on and you're just optimizing for high friction conversations because you have no idea what you're doing, so you just want to talk to the people who really, really care and are willing to get on the phone with you, that's great. Don't put your pricing up. That makes total sense. If you have really custom deals where every single customer that comes on or every single prospect that comes on, it's like a different package, then totally fine to, to not have that pricing up there. If you're anything in between, and even if you are that latter example, you should have some context. Hey, this starts at $10,000. Hey, uh, prices are between $20,000 and $50,000. Prices start between you know 50 bucks and 100 bucks, or just actually have the pricing out there. And the reason for that is because you don't want bad leads. We right. don't want people coming to us thinking price intelligently costs fifty dollars. Uh, we don't want those types of people because it's it's a waste of our sales sales team's time. Now we will talk to them. We have a bunch of resources for them. We'll nurture them, but we want them to see on our website. Even though there's a lot of custom customization with that product in terms of what the willing or what the actual price is, all of a sudden it's like we we want them to understand that hey here's a benchmark. So if that's not the benchmark, we probably shouldn't get on the phone to talk about a partnership. Instead, you should just use the free product, chat in to get some advice. That type of thing. Um, but I think that you're seeing that more and more that pressure because again, consumers are getting more information and, and more power, which, you know, I would argue is good, but you know, you could make an argument that, you know, businesses losing a ton of power is, is not so good. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that, you know, having worked at Glassdoor um, and having seen employers recoil at the concept of uh, anonymous reviews from candidates and from their employees and people putting salary information out there and that that being seen as like a, a violation of trust and shouldn't this be illegal and all these other things mm. we see um, to today's world where no one would ever take a job without going to a company's glass door page. You know, I, I guess I guess I've I have a pretty strong point of view on this, which is it is you can't you can't close your eyes and pretend that no one else can see you too. You know, like yeah. the world doesn't work that way. And so, uh, you know, and given a choice between obfuscation and transparency, transparency is always going to win. Hundred percent. No information. That's the world that we live in. Um, and so, therefore, therefore, you know, I think you as a company either embrace it or you fall behind. Uh, I do want to. I do want to touch on one, something that I've actually had a couple conversations with sales leaders about. That they say that, uh, and back to your initial point that you made about twenty-five to thirty percent plus pricing break. And, and the hockey stick of sales and, and yeah. know, coming in at the end of the month or end of the quarter. What, what do you see around buyer behavior, if anything? Mm -hmm. Because what we hear is that, well, buyers are comped or, or procurement people are comped based on beating you down on price. And they know that if we wait till the end of the month or the end of the quarter, that, that, uh, you know, that, that, that uh, the price is going to drop. And so they intention, intentionally don't buy 
Yeah. Until then, and they wait for the discount. And now it's just like, it's like, well, we can't break the cycle because buyers expect it. What do you think? Do you have any thoughts on that? I'm just curious. Yeah, I got a ton of thoughts because we, we face it because we do enterprise deals ourselves uh, okay. where they typically have a procurement department. Uh, we what we've done, and this is what we've learned off of, you know, some pretty successful folks and also just seeing some data in the market. This is where the strength or the power of a good salesperson really comes into play because in that discovery call, it's like the classic advice, right? That for some reason, a lot of people don't follow, which is asking, okay, so what's this process like for you guys? You know, so we're going to have this, then we have a security review, then we're going to loop in Joe or Jamie or whomever from that department. And then, and then, oh, you got, oh, you have procurement. Okay, good to know, like anything that they look out for, like, right? Like it's the classic, uh, you know, thinking about the actual sales journey. And as soon as you know that there's procurement, the price automatically goes up 10 to 15% because the procurement person is going to, they want that 10 to 15% and you, you don't want to get on the phone with that person and go, Oh crap, I forgot. Now I have to try to like take stuff away. So the price doesn't change, but they're going to have to knock you down somehow. Right. And instead like you get on the phone with that person and it's a little bit of back and forth here and there, but it's, you know, you can be straight with them and say, you know, what, what are you guys trying to do? Right. Like what, what's a win here for you? Okay. Let me see if I can get that. And you've already kind of raised that price a bit to, to help them with that. I think the other piece of this, particularly with quarters is if you're not a public company, which most people probably listening to this aren't, uh, you, you have power over what your quarters defined by. So we actually offset our quarters uh, by, um, I'm not going to say because I don't want anyone to, to then use this against us, but we offset our quarters uh, by a number of days, if not weeks. I'll just be very broad there. So our quarters don't end when the average quarter does. And that helps a lot because our sales team, and, and we're also, we're, we're big enough, but small enough where we can be a little flexible in certain places uh, because we don't want that pressure to, to basically, you know, be the reason why our sales team is being pushy. So those are a few things that we've seen. Um, and th those are the things that we've kind of adopted to, to basically combat this. I mean, you, you, you know, Salesforce, I think invented this concept <laughs> of a quarter ending on January 30th or 31st, yeah. as opposed to December, because I mean, I think the initial concept there was, you know, everybody's on Christmas holiday and new year's and you're trying to get deals done and it's a shit show. And so you, you, you just offset it by a month, but now it's becoming more and more in vogue because people are realizing like, Oh wait, like this actually helps us, uh, you know, in terms of our negotiation as well. Time is a construct, right? That's the, <laughs> it's a man-made invention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. But let's talk philosophically about the concept of quota for a second. Oh boy. Because because I I have a crazy opinion on this, which is to say uh -oh. that, which is to say that quotas are singularly responsible for the negative stigma around sales in that if we eliminated the concept of a quota and salespeople mm -hmm. were compensated based on the number of deals that they closed and it was there was no concept of how much you had to bring in every month it was just you know you you could as much as you as much as you hunted you you, you got to eat and and but there was no number attached to that there was no 
additional spiffs attached to going over or 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 clawbacks if you didn't hit certain numbers and like we didn't we didn't do accelerators and decelerators and all these other things that the entire the entire uh, profession of sales would would have like just a there would be a bunch of people who would leave because they would be like well if i'm not going to get all these accelerators and i'm not going to be in it for but but those are probably the people that you don't want selling anyway because they're they're just selfish purposes and then what i think you would end up with and again this is a crazy idea so i'm gonna i'm just gonna finish with a crazy thought i think what you'd end up with is a much more buyer-centric sales process because quotas are singularly tied to internal vendor things. They have nothing to do with the buyer. And so Mm. if my quota is $25,000 this quarter or this month, let's just say my quota is 25K and I'm at $17,500 and I need 7,500 bucks to hit my quota. And if my product costs $10,000 and I've got a deal and I go to my boss and I say, hey, I need 7,500 bucks. Can I offer a discount to this? to this company they're going to say yes and then and then i'm going to go and offer the discount they're in line but but only if you sign this month because otherwise then i'm and then of course like you know this is the whole pushiness around sales and i think that there's a lot of negative revenue yeah. to having quotas what are your thoughts on this Just i think yeah i i feel like it's 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 like comparing communism and capitalism it's like yeah, this is a really great idea in theory, uh, but <laughs> but the re- the reason is because I, I think about th- there's the kind of pejorative phrase that salespeople are coin operated, right? Mm-hmm. And and there's a lot of those people where your sales, like the way you co- way you compensate salespeople, has a lot of power. You know, decelerators, accelerators. I, I I've seen it work where we all of a sudden you know offer deceleration on certain things and acceleration on certain things and literally took a quarter to change things, right? It, it didn't take a year. Like we thought it was going to take, it took a quarter, right? But I, I, I see your point. And I think my, I have a little bit of a different view um, that's in the spirit of what you're saying. But I feel like when you have quota that controls that salesperson, you either aren't supporting that salesperson in some way the pricing isn't set up in the right way to support and kind of take discounting out of the entire equation. Uh, Just to give you an example, if there's a value metric based pricing model, basically it's like one of those things where, you know, you can't really discount that. I mean, you can, but if you're charging per hundred visits or per hundred X, Y, Z, or even per user, yes, there's, there's, you could calculate what that is, but really you're not necessarily going to discount the actual core product. Um, and also, if you if you make sure that you have some flexibility for quota relief and things like that, I think you can kind of mix the benefits of what you're describing and the benefits of an actual quota. Now, that being said, most companies that you go into with quotas, they're they basically think of salespeople as cogs, um, you know, and and they're you know points in a spreadsheet. And what ends up happening is basically exactly like you said. It's well, they hit their number. Nope well, we're not going to give them discounting authority. And so let's just get rid of them if they can't, can't make it happen. And that's normally larger companies, right? Um, like I think about HubSpot and HubSpot is a really, really good sales organization, but some of their, the sales comp stuff that we've heard that they're currently doing, it only makes sense at a company of the size of HubSpot. Like if we implemented that here, it would be terrible. It would be a terrible idea. So I don't know, I guess I'm not, I'm not saying yes or no to what you're saying in terms of an opinion. I'm kind of saying, 
doesn't feel like it's completely possible, but the spirit of it, I think, is really, really good. Well, so one one uh, additional lens to look at this uh, conversation with, because again, I think that quotas and pricing are so directly correlated, and yeah. and ultimately, but but I want to go back to what you were saying around uh, salespeople being coin operated. Yep. Um, not all salespeople, but in no, aggregate. No, 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 no. no. We're not we're not cherry picking on on individual salespeople. We're saying as an industry, we no. consider salespeople to be coin operated, and there's this whole concept of hire for and fire to, and you know, like you know, you're only as good as your performance last quarter, and you know, there's all these like adages around sales. When Gary Glenn Ross, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. Uh, always Big be knives. closing and Wolf of Wall Street, and you know, whatever it takes to close the deal, and always be closing. So, so look, the the reality is, if if I look at job descriptions for salespeople, I see a lot of adjectives like hustler. I see sales ninja. I see someone who's aggressive, someone who's competitive. I see someone who's got a lot of, uh, you know, like a whatever it takes kind of mentality. I see I see a lot of things like that, and. Then when I talk, so I get sitting at Bravado, I get the I get the opportunity to not just speak to salespeople, but I get the opportunity to talk to a lot of buyers. And when I talk to buyers, it's funny, nobody wants to buy from a hustler. It's weird, right? Yeah. Like, when I ask them adjectives of what types of salespeople they want to work with, they yeah. want someone who's technical, someone who's got a lot of product expertise, someone who's respectful, someone who's kind, someone who's relationship. Yeah. Right. So, so why are we hiring people that are almost the antithesis of the kind of person that, that our buyers actually want to buy from? Yeah, I think it's the old school versus the new school, man. I think that you look at old school, it still respects that. And and some of that's okay. Like a little bit of, of like obviously motivation and drive is very, very different than the hustler, the huckster, if you will, like those types of things. And so I think for me in particular, the way I look at, like when I look at our sales team, we had people who were a little way too relationshipy. And then we had people, we never really hired like the traditional I'm slinging and crushing deals like that kind of guy or gal. Um, but I, I think that a lot of, in a lot of ways that culture is, you know, what you repeatedly do and it's the habits and behaviors that you have. I think it, it just is the same thing with like your sales team. I think if you hire a lot of, you know, huckstery, aggressive folks, uh, that's what your sales process is going to be. And you better have a product that is low ARPU and just is slinging calls, right? Uh, and most of us were moving into markets where relationships are important and product expertise, like you said. And so to me, it's more it's more like if if you are cultivating your sales culture in the right way to be buyer-centric and having some of that flexibility and maybe, yes, having some quotas and some accelerators here and there, depending on what it is, I think you can kind of bridge bridge this gap between the old school and the new school. Uh, I, I've seen it done in a number of organizations. Like one that I would think about is um, Help Scout. I don't know if you've heard of that company. Um, they're a help desk. They're pretty big. Uh, they uh, Nick Francis is the CEO, and he's a very kind of design product oriented person. And he didn't even want salespeople because, you know, of the stigma about sales folks. But they do sales the way that Help Scout would do sales, which is very relationship, very customer, because they're a support, you know, desk and a help desk. Sure. Yeah. So I think it, it's it's you can build the sales team you want, right? And you know, you adjust and you know, reset based on what's good and what's bad, basically. 
I see. I think that so let's let's just shifting gears for a moment, and then and then we'll bring it back here. We we see the rise of of chatbots and 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 kind of innovation in AI when it comes to sales, and we're not as far along as everyone thinks we are. But yeah. also, you know, to, not to not to just be filled with platitudes, but I really do believe in the you know in the short run we overestimate how much change there will be, and in the long run we underestimate how much change there will be. And yep. so I think in the short run nothing's going to change, but I think in the long run buyers will have a choice one day: either I'm going to talk to a salesperson, or I'm just going to chat with some AI thing or or I'm just going to like buy through the website or whatever where we're basically interaction with a salesperson will become a choice as opposed to a, a forced necessity. Yeah. And I think that you see that in B2C today already where if I go to Netflix's page, homepage and I'm not logged in, I just see, you know, $7.99 a month, no credit card required, one month free trial, click here to watch. You know, that's yeah. I go to Amazon, it's like one click to buy. Here's all your reviews, you do your own research, select the product you want, purchase it. You know, there's, and, and I think B2B is just always 10 years behind B2C. So if we go 10 years forward, I think this will be the norm in, in, in B2B. And so as a profession of sales, which, which obviously I, you know, in the way that you champion, um, you know, pricing, uh, pricing well, uh, and and pricing intelligently and there you go. and uh, and and uh, you know making sure that you're maximizing the value that you're getting from each customer without like scaring off the market or whatever. Um, you know we champion salespeople at Bravado and the cha- and the profession of sales. And in fact, I've written like a Hippocratic oath of sales. We're you know talking about a code of conduct and and best practice and like ethics around sales and so so there's like a lot of things that we do in the space. But you know I am very nervous about the future of our industry unless we stop doing things that customers would if they had a choice would just make them say all right well screw this i'm not going to deal with you and and one of the things that i i am most sensitive towards the thing that is really annoying because it happens to me every single month and every single quarter for any product that i've ever taken a demo of ever the sales rep magically emails me and says, says, Hey, Sahil, I've got just one or two more discounts left to go this month and we can do 30%. And I know that that wasn't a good time. And it's just like, all it makes me think is, Holy crap. Like you must just not be at quota, you know, like you just must be struggling. It just makes it, it just makes everything feel so desperate. And that is a feeling that I think is, is, um, uh, that, that nobody likes. And so if we go back to our conversation around sales and the way it's done and quotas and, and all the rest of it, you know, is there, is there a world in which the profession of sales that you've mentioned help scout, which I think is just a great example. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to bug you for an intro to, to that CEO. I want to, I want to chat with him, but is there a world in which salespeople and sales as a profession survives in the long run, not, not in the short run? Yeah. But in the long run, without adopting just like a completely different set of practices that just are not archaic and old school, like I just don't see it, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, sales sales have been around for thousands of years, right? In some some manner, whether it was, you know, someone trying to trade something in a market or sell something in a market, right? I, I think there's Kyle, Kyle Porter over at um, uh, Sales Loft, I think has, has kind of the best... Um, the best quote on this and I'm going to butcher it, but sales is basically like, it's like, 
I can't even remember it, unfortunately, but it's like something along the lines of, you know, it's, it's transferring belief and transferring the value from your mind to the other person. Um, he says it much more eloquently. And, and I think that sales will still exist in that manner, but it'll be less trickery, right? Because we, we can't, there will probably always be some trickery in sales. Uh, and, and I use that term very specifically because it's not always nefarious, but it still is a little bit of trick trickery, if that makes sense. I think it's just going to be, we'll kind of have seen the playbook over and over again. And then in the world of like human beings and human psychology, it'll be a lot easier to understand BS and trust and all those types of things. And so the salesperson's job will be more like, okay, cool. So what questions do you have? You know, it's, it's a little bit more of a reactive, you're ready to go, or I reached out at the exact right time. This doesn't feel bad for either of us. This feels super personable and, and super relationship-based. And I feel like I can call you when I need something else as a customer. And I think that's where the evolution is going to go. And, and basically just because information asymmetry is going to decrease significantly, it's just going to keep decreasing. Uh, and I, I think that's great. I think that's a world where it will exist and we won't feel bad about ourselves. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the aggressive folks will move on to, I don't even know, the the, the small industries that will still have large information asymmetry. And that's right. And, you know, something to that point, which I which I really believe in and I, and I really uh, you know, agree with you deeply is the fact that information asymmetry is is at the core of the trickery in sales. Mm-hmm. So I would, I would say that um, because it, it is just that like, you know, buyer asks you a question, does your product do this? Now you as a salesperson have a choice. You can either yeah. say yes or you can say no. Most of the time you're going to say yes and or yes but instead of saying no because you know if you say no, then you're likely to lose the deal or, or potentially going to lose the deal. Yeah. And it is, it is that it is that ability of a salesperson to deceive, because it is deception at its at, at its core. It is the ability to deceive that information asymmetry uh, allows. But now, if the buyer is able to just ask that question, you know, openly and get the answer from someone who isn't incentivized to sell you, then I think that that at, at that moment, you know, what is the role of a salesperson? So when I think of like the role of a salesperson in the future, I think that there will be kind of a hybrid of salesperson and sales engineer where everyone will become more technical. Everyone will become more product focused. And, yeah. and, and just in the same way that you hire Bain or Accenture or McKinsey or someone to come in and do analytics and you make recommendations that are in your best interest because you paid them and, and, and they are therefore going to consult you. I think that there will be a rise of a class of professionals who will be middlemen between vendors and, and buyers. I really do believe that. I think that there will mm. be professional purchasers, like 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 my MarTech stack advisor, and that person. Yeah. You're kind of seeing this already. This is popping up. I mean, a lot of the uh, the research firms like Forrester and Gartner and things like that, they're starting to do a lot of that. Um, either through kind of like aggregate reporting or through, I believe, some one-on-one research. Uh, but that, yeah, I think it's 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 super interesting you say that. I think it's um, I, I I think that there will be a rise of that, and it's kind of uh, juicing the whole concept of like word of mouth, right? Uh, because that person is is basically an influencer in the market. But I don't know. I I, I think I do think that the deception will decrease or the trickery will decrease, but I don't know. I, I just kind of feel like 
there's still going to, there's still going to be sales and there's still going to be, you know, the, we're, we're going to have this conversation, but maybe the, the inputs or the things we complain about are going to be a little bit different. Uh, <laughs> but it's, you know, that's just the nature of human beings and, you know, wanting to always be better. There you go. I think that's a good, I think that's a fun, fun point for us to, for us to end this, this session. Cause this has been a blast. And Patrick, I, I could honestly spend the next like five hours here talking to you about this stuff. You're, you're, you're just a blast to chat with man. I thanks man um, for, uh, for anyone who wants to get a hold of you. Um, what is the best way to, to get in touch? Uh, if they've got follow-up questions or want to pick your brain about something. Yeah. So two places, uh, Patrick Campbell on LinkedIn. Uh, there's a number of Patrick Campbell's, but you'll see this bright and shiny bearded man, uh, for, for myself. And then, um, also PC at profitwall.com is how you can reach me directly. I typically get back to everyone, not always right away. It might take some time, but definitely if you need any advice on pricing or anything like that, we've seen inside a number of companies that can, you know, definitely help. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for your time, Patrick. And I, uh, I, I really enjoyed our session today. Some really good conversation points. And, uh, and I look forward to having you hopefully as a guest sometime in the future. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks, man. Cheers. Bye.